Well, we're back in the book of Romans. I am happy uh, to continue the book of Romans. We're in chapter 3 of the book of Romans. This morning, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. And the title of the sermon is, Overruled. (laughs) Objection overruled. That's what Paul is talking about here. And as we're going through the book of Romans, uh, I believe that it's important for us to keep in mind the historical context of the book. You know, we don't do very well with that in the 20th century, keeping historical context. Uh, I'm afraid that most of us are very poor students of history, or we don't really appreciate history the way that we should. In fact, I have some excerpts here. These are actual excerpts, but they're hilarious excerpts. They're also a little sad. And here are some actual answers given on history exams. This is no lie. Both Bible history and secular history, either high school or college. High school or college. I'm reading you the answers that some students put on their essay texts describing a history or some aspect of history. One, Moses led the Hebrew slaves to the Red Sea where they made unleavened bread, which is bread without any ingredients. (laughs) Two, Moses went up on top of Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. He died before he ever reached the land of Canada. Here's another one. Ancient Egypt was inhabited by mummies, and they all wrote in hydraulics. They lived out in the Sahara Desert and traveled by Camelot. I'm not making this stuff up. Socrates was a famous Greek teacher who went around giving people advice. That's what killed him. He died from an overdose of wedlock. I just read them. I don't explain them. Uh, The Romans conquered the Greeks. History calls the people Romans because they never stayed in one place very long. Oh, there's more. Nero was a cruel tyrant who would torture his subjects by playing the fiddle to them. (laughs) It was an age of great inventions and discoveries. Gutenberg invented the Bible. Another invention was the circulation of blood. Uh, it's, Sir Walter Raleigh is a historical figure because he invented cigarettes and started smoking. <laughs> Two more. The greatest writer of the Renaissance was William Shakespeare. He was born in the year 1654, supposedly on his birthday. He wrote, <laughs> he wrote tragedies, com- comedies, and hysterectomies. <laughs> Another great author was John Milton. Milton wrote Paradise Lost. Then his wife died, and he wrote Paradise Regained. (laughs) Oh, it's good to be back home. One more. Abraham Lincoln became America's greatest precedent, and it's spelled P-R-E-C-E-D-E-N-D, precedent. Lincoln's mother died in her infancy, and Lincoln was born in a log cabin that he built with his own hands. (laughs) Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves by signing the Emasculation Proclamation. (laughs) On the night of April 14, 1865, Lincoln went to the theater and got shot in his seat by one of the actors in a moving picture show. The believed assassinator was John Wilkes Booth, an insane actor. This ruined Booth's career. (laughs) Okay, let me gather myself. All right. Now, I'm sure that those of you who teach college and high school, you got to laugh at that because you know people who have done exactly the same on some exams that you've given. So, with all that as a background, I want to remind you of the historical context of Romans chapter 3. 
Paul grew up in the Jewish religion. He was an expert on it. For many years, he served as the chief prosecutor and persecutor of the believers, the Jewish believers. He went around making sure that they were put to death. Then he came to faith. He became a believer himself. And instead of being a prosecutor and persecutor of the faith, he became the greatest defender of the faith in his time. Chapter 1, he talks about how man without any kind of religious background, pagan Gentiles, are terribly sinful. That's what chapter 1 is all about. And as he was writing those words, I'm sure the Jewish believers in Rome were saying, that's right, Paul, give it to them, those terrible old Gentile pagan people. Then comes chapter 2, and he really comes down hard on the religious people about those who are trusting a Jewish religion as, in our case, a, a messianic religion or a protestant religion or a baptist faith and he aims his biggest guns at what i would say is called religion and now in chapter two he synthesizes the first two chapters and he tries to make a definite point look at romans 3 9 even though we're not going to be there this morning but he brings his conclusion to light what shall we conclude then are we meaning the jews any better not at all we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And that's the point. That's the point he's been trying to make. And it's the point he's going to develop in the next few chapters. And having said all of that in the preceding eight verses, the Apostle Paul does something a little unusual. And because I believe he's such an incredible, bright, legal mind, as he is defending his faith, he also steps into the role of the people who have objections to belief in Yeshua. People who have objections against believing are all people are are people who have objections against believing all people are sinners and that they need a savior. And he anticipates all of their questions and he presents the objections and then he overrules the objections. That's why today's message is entitled Overruled. Now, when I was a kid, many years ago, Perry Mason was a weekly television show, right? Does anyone remember Perry Mason? Who remembers Perry Mason? Right. He would stand up in the heat of the trial and would say something like, Objection, Your Honor! And he would say why he was making the objection. And the judge, well, he would say something like this. He'd say, Okay, or Objection Sustained, or You're Correct in Your Objection, or... Objection overruled. Well, today the Apostle Paul is looking at three objections even people today make about their sinful condition, and he overrules them all. So let's look at all three of these objections and the ruling of the heavenly Supreme Court. Objection number one, there is no value in being religious. Some people say that there is absolutely no value in being religious. So let's look at the verses, verses 1 and 2, and see how Paul answers this objection. First of all, he poses the question, and then he answers it. Quote, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? We might say something like, what value is there in going to Shabbat services? Or what value is there in reading the Bible? Or what value is there in going into Shabbat school? And here's the answer. Verse 2, much in every way. It is valuable. First of all, they, meaning the Jews, have been entrusted with the very words of God. Now, the question or the objection is this. 
Okay, I believe you. Being religious will never get anybody into heaven. You convinced me of that, Paul. You convinced me in chapter 2. I mean, you know, like being baptized. That's religious. It won't get you into heaven. Uh, Walking down an aisle and filling out a form. That's a religious act. It won't get you into heaven. Um, So if, if none of that can save you, or going to services on Shabbat morning, that's a religious act. That won't get you into heaven either. So if none of that can save you, what's the value of it? Why don't we just drop out altogether? Why don't we just shut down all the congregations? Why don't we, like some people who are out there who never darken the door of a congregation, why don't we say, why don't we say, well, you know what? Religion's vain. Religion's empty. Religion's worthless. And there's absolutely no value in being religious. And this is what Paul says. You have been given God's word. Here's the ruling he makes from heaven. God has given you his written word. Therefore, you cannot claim ignorance of his will. Going to Son of David will never get anyone into heaven. So, well, why do I go here? Why do I go to Shabbat school? Well, I'll tell you at least one good reason. You're exposed to the Bible. You're exposed to the Bible. You're exposed to the word of God. We open the Bible Shabbat after Shabbat after Shabbat, and we say, this is what God says. This is what God says. And Paul is saying that the Jewish people have the words of God. If you have a King James Bible, the translation, it says, they have the oracles of God. Oracles, it's kind of like this special word, if you will. It means finished, written down, and revealed by God. Now, there's nothing spiritual or holy or supernatural about the book It's just letters on pages. But what's inside the book, the life of the book, that's what's supernatural about the book. It's the very word of God himself. It's written down. It's complete. Now, there are some people who say you need to add a newer testament to the Bible, as our Mormons friends say. Of course, I disagree. I think all all you ever need to know about God is found right in the Hebrew Scriptures and in the New Testament Scriptures that we open up every Shabbat morning here at Son of David Congregation. I believe that that Bible is all any of us needs today to know God's will for our lives, for how we ought to live and how we ought to behave. Listen to the book of Romans, chapter 15, verse 4. This is what the Bible says about itself. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. We might have hope. We couldn't have Son of David congregation if we didn't have a Bible. I couldn't stand up and preach on Shabbat morning or speak to you about anything if we didn't have a Bible. We couldn't have Shabbat school classes for our kids if we didn't have a Bible because we're not here to express man's opinions. We're not here to express man's opinions. We're here to teach the inspired word of God. There was a flack a while back associated with the Southern Baptist Convention. It was a number of years ago. The Southern Baptist Convention changed the charter to include a statement about marriage that says husbands ought to lovingly lead their families, protect them, and provide for them. And it says wives should graciously submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. It's almost a direct quotation from Ephesians chapter 5. And it caused an outcry in America. People said, well, of course that's what the Bible says. 
They don't disagree the Bible says that, but they said that was written for a different century, for a different culture, and for a different civilization. And they went on to say it has absolutely no impact on the American culture today. And there are some people who still believe that. And I'm here to tell you I'm not one of them. I believe that this Bible is all we need to have to learn how to live today, to have a successful marriage, to have a successful family, to have a successful business, to have a successful congregation. It's in the book. It's found in the Bible. So you want to know what the value of being religious is? At least we have the Word of God written down. Do you really hunger for His Word? Do you really want to study it? Do you really want to read it? How many Bibles do you even have in your house? One, two, 15, 20? Do you read them? There's a book I came across, a book by Robert Sumner. It was written at the beginning of this century. And this is the title of the book, The Wonder of the Word of God. The Wonder of the Word of God. And in this book about the Bible, he tells a story about a man in Kansas who was injured in an explosion. The explosion blinded him and terribly disfigured his face. His arms and his hands were burned. And suddenly he realized he couldn't read anything anymore. Now, Braille had not been around for too long, but he decided he wanted to learn Braille so that he could read the Bible for himself instead of having it read to him. Here's the problem. He had no feeling in the tips of his fingers, so he couldn't even read the Braille. Then he heard about a woman in England who read Braille with her lips, so he tried that. But he didn't even have any nerve endings in the end of his lips anymore. This man was so desperate to study the Word of God for himself that he used his tongue to learn Braille so that he could read the Bible. And Robert Sumner says the man read the Braille Bible with his tongue through four times before he died. Now, I don't know about you, but that's conviction. I have two eyes. I have two hands. I got plenty of Bibles. Are we hungry for the Word of God? That's what religion should do. Make us hungry for the Word of God. It can't save us, but it exposes us to God's Word. That's objection number one. Objection overruled. Here's objection number two. God hasn't been faithful to me. That's why I sin. Oh, I know. You don't have to raise your hand. (laughs) But there are some of you here who have said that in your heart. Objection number two. Some people say God hasn't been faithful to me, so that's why I sin. I'm a sinner because God let me down. He's failed me. Well, that's exactly what Paul says. Look at verses 3 and 4. Here's the question. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? And here's the answer. Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. That last quotation, by the way, is from Psalm 51. It's from when King David had been convicted of adultery and murder. And he says, God, I have sinned against you. I have been unfaithful to you, but you have been faithful to me. Here's the objection Paul's addressing. And there are some people even today who say, you know the reason I don't go to congregation. You know the reason I don't have any time for God. You know the reason I don't have any room for God in my life. It's because God let me down. I've heard it. People have said to me, 
things like, I had a little child and the child contracted a disease and I prayed, dear God, heal my child. But the child died. I'm here to tell you that I cannot believe in a God who would let a child die. I've also heard people say, my dad was sick with cancer. I prayed and I said, dear God, heal my daddy. But God didn't heal my daddy and he died. I have no room or time for a God like that. Some people are like a man who runs into a pastor's office after his teenage son dies in a wreck and he hits the pastor's desk as hard as he can and he says, where was God when my son died? Well, here's the answer. He was at the same place when his son died. He was at the same place when his son died. And there are actually some people who honestly think God let them down so they have no room for God and that's their objection. The ruling Paul makes here or the way he overrules his objection is like this. God is faithful and true. God is faithful and true and therefore you cannot blame your sin on God. God is faithful, it says in verse 3. He is true, it says in verse 4. Therefore you cannot blame your sin or your lack of leading a moral godly life on him. God has always been faithful to keep his promises to us. He's never failed on one of his promises. Think about faithfulness. We're not faithful to God. We try to be characterized by faithfulness, but think about this. Faithfulness is an all-or-nothing proposition. You cannot be partially faithful, can you? For instance, here's a wife who says to her husband, Honey, have you been faithful to me all throughout our marriage? And he says to her, Well, yes, my dear, I've been faithful to you 80% of the time. That's not faithfulness. Or, yes, honey, I've been faithful to you 90% of, 95% of the time. That's still not faithfulness. I've been faithful to you 99% of the time. That's still not faithfulness. You cannot be partially faithful. And God's character is described as faithful. 100% faithful. Can you think of a time in your past when you thought God let you down? When he was not faithful to keep his promise? Some people have had answers for me on that. Yeah, this was the time, they say. Well, the only thing I can say is that one day when you understand things the way God understands things, you'll understand that even then he was faithful to you. The only reason you don't think he was faithful is because of our own lack of understanding at this time. When it comes to eternal reality, eternal reality, you and I can only see about 1% of it. When we see the other 99%, Even though you think God has been unfaithful to you, you realize he's faithful and true and he's never let you down. Have you ever noticed, though, that that's a tendency with people? We try to excuse our sins. We try to blame God for making us the way we are. I mean, James 1.13 says it this way. When tempted, no one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone But each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed. All that means is when you sin and when I sin, we can't put the blame on God. We can't say, God, you made me that way, so it's your fault, God. But that's human nature, isn't it? To try to justify our behavior, to try to excuse our sinfulness. An excuse is the skin of the truth stuffed with a lie. We always try to make excuses. I once knew someone who was a state trooper. 
He used to tell me all about different excuses people gave him when he stopped them for speeding. Oh, you're laughing, right? Because you've made them too, right? My, uh, my um, um, speed uh, uh, control was uh, stuck. My cruise control. Uh, oh, my speedometer is broken. Um, I was just driving the same speed as everybody else around me. Why are you picking on me? But there was one excuse that he had never heard before and has never heard since, and it's absolutely the best one he ever heard. He stopped someone, a sweet-looking little old lady, and said, Ma'am, did you know you were driving 60 miles an hour? She looked at him and smiled and said, That's impossible, Sonny. I haven't even been gone an hour. (laughs) He said he thought about that for a moment and said, Bless your heart. Slow down and keep going. He didn't even give her a ticket. Yeah, you might try that sometime. It's human nature to try to excuse our, our behavior. It, it, it's not our fault. Or this story I heard, it's the greatest story in the world. This um, woman was driving down a 60-mile-an-hour highway at 90 miles an hour, and the state trooper stopped her, pulled her over, and he, he went and he said, uh, roll your window down. She went, no. He said, step out of the car. She went, no. He said, let me see your driver's license. She said, No. He said, you need to open up your trunk. She said, no, there's a dead body in there. At this time, the state trooper's getting a little freaked out. So he goes back to his control, his patrol car, and he, he calls up another one. And the other guy comes over, and he goes over to the lady. And he goes, lady, roll down your window. She rolls down the window. He says, can I see your driver's license? She says, of course, here's the driver's license. He said, would you please step out of the car? She says, of course, and she steps out of the car. He says, would you open up your trunk? My, my partner said there was a dead body in there. She opens up the trunk. He goes, there's no dead body in there. And she looked at him and I says, I guess he said I was speeding too. <laughs> it's nothing new. That's what Adam and Eve did, isn't it? Remember the Garden of Eden? God put them in a perfect environment. And he said, enjoy yourself. Have fun. Eat. Be fruitful. Multiply. But by the way, I'm reserving an area of my holiness that I do not want you to transgress. By the way, that's what God does. He reserves areas for himself. And that's exactly what Eve did. She was tempted by the servant, but she stepped over the line. She ate the forbidden fruit. And then she influenced Adam and he ate the forbidden fruit. And that's when sin entered the human race. And that's why we have a whole heap of trouble. And do you remember how they responded when God confronted them with their sin? The same way most of us respond when we're confronted with guilt. We blame somebody else. God talked to Adam. He said, Adam, why'd you do this? Adam pointed his finger at Eve. It's not my fault, God. It's the woman you gave me. It's her fault. Ladies, do you ever wonder why your husband says it's never his fault, it's always your fault? came from Adam. Don't blame him. That's where it started, right there. It's not my fault. It's the woman you gave me. It's her fault. It's not my fault. If it's not her fault, God, it's your fault because you're the one who gave me this woman. Then God confronted Eve and she said, it's not my fault. It was that old snake. And God, you created the serpent. Not my fault. We all try to pass the blame. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the snake. And the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. Isn't that right? So we always try to pass the buck, blame somebody else. That's what Paul is saying. You can't blame anybody else for your sin. You have to admit, I'm a sinner. I was made this way. It is not God's fault. And here's objection number three. 
The more evil I do, the better God appears in comparison. <laughs> Objection number three is that people actually say, the more evil I do, the better God appears in comparison. Look at verses five through eight. Here are some questions he says people are asking. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath upon us? I'm using a human argument here. That lets us know that this is not the divine word of God he's sharing. No, he's using a human argument for this objection. And then he answers it. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Now, someone someone might argue, well, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Or let me just paraphrase that. Somebody might say, God's so truthful and I'm such a liar, every time I lie, it just makes God look that much better, right? He says, that's ridiculous. That's what Paul says. Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Here's Paul's opinion on that. Their condemnation is deserved. It's deserved. Now, there are some people who think they don't have to live by any rules or laws. They think they can do whatever they want, and it just makes God look better in comparison. The only problem is you don't compare yourself to God. God has a totally different value standard than we do. You make a mistake if you compare yourself to anybody else. That's like the little boy who had a puppy. <laughs> One day he said to his mother, Mom, I'm going to sell this puppy this morning. She said, Okay, how much are you going to ask for him? He said, Well, he's a pretty nice puppy. I think I'm going to ask $10,000 for him. She just smiled and said, good luck. Well, he comes back before lunch and he doesn't have his puppy anymore. He says, I sold my puppy. She said, did you have to come down in price on the puppy in any way? He said, no, not at all. She said, you mean you got $10,000 for him? He said, well, sort of. I traded him for two $5,000 cats. You see, that's the problem with comparing yourself to God or comparing yourself to anybody else. It's a totally separate set of values. And some people say, well, every time I lie, it just makes God look that much more truthful. Have you ever noticed that when a jeweler brings out a diamond, they don't just put it up on the glass counter? No, they put it on a piece of black velvet so that against the backdrop of the black velvet, the beauty and the color of the diamond is enhanced. When someone's selling beautiful white lace, they don't just lay it down on the counter. They put it on black velvet. So all the details and the intricacies of the lace are enhanced by the black background. And if you will, that's the argument Paul's refuting. There are some people who say God's goodness is enhanced when you look at it against the backdrop of my wicked behavior. So let's live it up. I'm doing God a favor by sinning. And Paul says, that's stupid. That's ridiculous. That's a lame excuse. Now, those of you who know the history, who know history or theology, will recognize the term I'm about to use. Since the first century, there's been a movement that's called antinomianism, and there will be a spelling contest after service. Antinomianism, it actually is spelled like it sounds, which just means no laws. No laws. Nomos is the Greek word for law, anti means against. And there were people in Paul's day, just as there are today, who say, I don't have to live by any rules. I don't have to live by any standards. I can live by any way I want to. 
That's called antinomianism, or you might hear it as relative morality or subjective morality. We have those people today. Although you don't see people walk around saying, I confess I'm an antinomian, and I go to an anti, I go to antinomian anonymous. <laughs> Instead, they wear T-shirts that say, no rules, no fear, no limits. In other words, I can live any way I want to. I don't have to live by anybody's standards. Not God's standards, not the Bible standards. I'll live any way I want to. That's the people that are around today. And here's the ruling Paul makes against that as well. Ruling. God is righteous. He can't become any more righteous. Many of you have heard Ravi Zacharias on the radio. He's an incredible expositor of the scriptures. Ravi Zacharias was asked once by a college student in a large auditorium, Mr. Zacharias, why are you so afraid of relative morality? Ravi Zacharias looked at him and said, do you lock your door at night? He said, yes. He says, and I think you're afraid of relative morality too. Unless you repent, there is no escape from condemnation. Paul says God is righteous. He can't become more righteous. You can't make him any more righteous. That's part of his character. Therefore, unless you repent, you will not escape condemnation. And all that means is you can't justify or validate your sinful behavior by blaming it on God or anything else or anyone else. The question that the writer of Hebrews asks is the question all of us ought to be considering, quote, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? And here's the bottom line. God is holy and he must punish sin. We are sinful and in one way or another, we're going to have to deal with the punishment of God against sin. If there was ever a time in history that God perhaps would have been tempted to go easy on his judgment against sin, I suppose it would have been when Yeshua was hanging on that crucifixion stake. Don't you think? When he was on the cross, at that moment he became my sin, he became your sin, and the Bible said God laid on him the iniquities of us all. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, the Bible says. At that moment... When Yeshua took my sin, took your sin, if God had ever been tempted to go easy on sin, I think that would have been the moment. I think God might have thought, hey, that's my son. That's my only begotten son. That's my beloved son. So just this once, I'm going to take it easy with sin. But no, he didn't. He turned his back on his son. And he allowed his son to suffer in agony and blood until he died. And that's why as Yeshua was hanging on that crucifixion, he stake, he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer to that question is because God is holy and Messiah became sin for us. You will either face the judgment of God on your own or you will face the judgment of God standing where Yeshua stood at the cross. This is a great story. Some of you may have heard it before, but it's the best way to describe how you can escape God's judgment against sin. 
when the pioneers were moving westward and they were setting up farms out on the prairies, history says they were often devastated by wildfires raging and sweeping out of control across the plains of the west. The settlers would see the wildfire coming and wouldn't know what to do. So what do you do? Well, the only thing they knew to do was to pack up the few belongings they could find and run in front of the fire to escape it. The fire would ravage everything they had built and burn it to the ground. But soon the pioneers discovered a way they could endure the fires. As soon as they saw the horizon covered with smoke and flames sweeping toward them, they immediately went outside and fought fire with fire. They set the fire to the property around their home and around the barns and around the livestock, and they quickly controlled the burning and then put it out. That way, there were already burnt-out areas around their homes and barns. And so, as the wildfire swept toward them, they simply, listen, stood in the place where the fire had already burned. And when they stood where the fire had already burned, the wildfire couldn't touch them. Now, the point of the story is this. Throughout all of history, the only place the fire of God's judgment against sin has already fallen is at the cross of his son. You and I need to stand at the cross of Yeshua and accept what he took on our behalf. And if we do that, then we escape God's judgment. Dear ones, if you don't do that, if you don't do that, you have to face God's judgment on your own. And so we are all sinners before we come to faith. But God loves us and has made provision for us to escape his judgment against sin by trusting in his son, Yeshua. Have you done that? And I'm not talking about being religious. Have you done that? And I'm not talking about coming to Sunday David congregation on Saturday mornings. Have you done that? Have you personally put your faith in the Son of God, in his death, burial, and resurrection, and said, Yeshua, I believe with every fiber of my being that you died for me, and I am trusting what you did on the cross to get me into heaven. I'm not trusting how good I am. Yours, Lord, is the power to save for anyone who believes. And to that, let us all say, Amen. Would you, would you please stand with me as we close with the benediction? Again, the benediction is given to a community. No one stands alone. May the Lord, may the Lord bless and keep you. May his grace and his face shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, and give you peace. Yivarech Adonai v'yishmerecha Yair Adonai panav elecha v'chunecha 
Yisa Adonai panav elecha, v'yasem lecha shalom, v'yasem lecha shalom. This is the way you shall be blessed. From day to day, he'll be your rest. From day to day, he is your rest. May the Lord, may the Lord bless and keep you. May his grace and his face shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace and give you peace, and give you peace, and give you peace. Before we bless the wine and the bread, as we make our way down to Onik Shabbat, I want to remind you that next week, service starts at 10.30, but the service will last only until 12 o'clock. The Passover Seder is at Norbeck Country Club, which is on just off Georgia Avenue toward Olney. It's about a 20-minute drive from here. The Seder will begin at 1 o'clock and probably last till about 3.30. We still need volunteers to help put together the Seder plates and to help make the Choroset mixture. And also, the deadline for registration has been extended to Monday, So if you have not signed up yet and you want to sign up, please come and see me today and we'll make sure that you're registered for the Seder. If the cost of the Seder is a hardship, we do have some benevolence money thanks to the kind and extra giving of some of our members. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Borei perihagafen, Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Shabbat shalom.